I've entitled this episode of Cantillon Effects Duck Hunting. Not because I have any sudden urge to blast waterfowl out of the sky, but because there are a number of economic canards that clearly do need shooting down before they can find a safe place to roost in the general consciousness and there begin to breed even more confusion than already exists. So as a starting point, let's have another pop at MMT, so-called modern monetary theory. Well, as you know, we consider this to be a logically and practically unsound conflation of half-truths, tautologies and, well, pseudo-originality that's well on the way to becoming another hashtag cult of the day. If you don't believe that, look at the tweet that some poor ingenue put up recently when he said, having stumbled presumably onto a social media battleground of intertribal warfare, has anyone recently asked you to defend your criticism of MMT? Well, ironically enough, yes. I was on the receiving end of just such demand and um, politely pointed the true believer at several of the expositions I've given over the years, in fact, over the last decade. But I was instantly dismissed with the accusation of being only a sniper who wanted to sneer at the gospel of his newest of new gods and promptly got blocked for my sins. The infamy, the infamy. Well, time's short and errors are manifold, so let's just be as blunt as possible. MMT is a hastily repackaged programme calling for state-led commandeering of resources and the wholesale conscription of labour. To turn Clausewitz upside down, therefore, it's a policy which is a continuation of warfare by other means. Its advocates even concede this when they link it to their other current hobby horse, the supposed need to combat climate change. And lest you think that mass deindustrialization is the only such grandiose project of the bien-pensantery whose realisation under MMT is being loosely advanced to entice new followers and also to beat us disbelievers into acquiescence, we are promised by these people not just a Parthenon or a Taj Mahal or a Hoover Dam, not even just a Green New Deal and its prospect of planetary salvation, but an actual end to all the evils, both real and imaginary, which occupy the thoughts and disturb the sleep of your typical humanities student and <clears throat> Brooklyn coffee shop waitress. Mises used to deride Keane's not entirely dissimilar delusion that prosperity issues directly from the printing press as a belief in making bread out of stones, a temptation whose attempt to Christ starving in the wilderness sagely resisted, but which seems utterly beyond the capacity of the political classes ever to forego. But the double emptiers go far beyond even Keane's wishfulness by espousing what is effectively a nationalisation project, a seizure of the means of production, as our classic Marxist friends would say. It's a closet series of five-year plans to be carried out by counterfeiting. It's an elevation of the state. It's an enshrining of the many pitfalls mapped out in what is called public choice theory, which is an eminently reasonable body of work which simply says men do not miraculously become angels once elected to public office or employed by those who are. It also fundamentally confuses two entirely separate, if generally overlapping, concepts, that of finance and funding. The former, as everyone from a late Roman emperor to Henry VIII, from Charles Ponzi to Bernie Madoff, from Rudolf Havenstein to Gideon Goon and Nicolas Maduro could confirm, is simply a means of offering a notional promise to pay, no matter how fraudulently constituted and thus incapable of being fully honoured that promise might be. Funding, by contrast, 
entails the allocation of the necessary real resources to see one's project through to its envisaged conclusion. Far more than just waving specially printed oblongs of paper around, this involves the direct or indirect sacrifice, the opportunity cost as economists say, of therefore not being able to employ the same means for other, more instantly pleasurable purposes. Again to echo Mises, in making such crass mistakes, MMT exposes itself as a doctrine only fit for that satirical medieval garden of earthly delights, of dreamy idleness, of endless cakes and copious ale, the land of cocaine, or, in the far more earthy German usage, Schlaraffenland, lazy ape country. A couple of years ago I started an article by saying that the first great lesson of economics emphasised by Henry Hazlitt is that there is no free lunch. The second, courtesy of Frédéric Bastiat, is that if it sometimes appear there is one, it means we've just not looked deeply enough into the consequences of our attempt to enjoy it. The third lesson, the joint insight of several generations of Austrians, is that the attempt to buy one for ourselves through monetary manipulation is eventually doomed to fail. And the cynic adds the fourth, no one has ever wished to abide by the strictures inherent in the first three rules. MMT, then, either ignores or willingly flouts all four of these rules, and the sooner those currently infatuated with its meretricious daring realise that fact, and so consign it to the intellectual oblivion it deserves, the better. But if MMT is merely a nest of misconceptions enjoying a current vogue, much hoarier mistake, this involving a thoroughly capricious and monofunctional creature called a consumer who drives the economy through his efforts, that's popped up again in all sorts of places recently. For example, the mighty Jim O'Neill declared roundly on CNBC a week or two back that the single most important thing in the world today is whether the Chinese consumer is slowing down. And that well-known US opinionator Josh Brown has recently been pushing around a chart purporting to show that it's the American consumer who's the most important, accounting for, by his somewhat dubious reckoning, up to a sixth of world GDP. Now, like all such expressions of what passes for common wisdom, there is a glimmer of truth to these pronouncements, but it's also profoundly misleading, and it's conducive, therefore, to bad economic reasoning and worse targeted intervention. To see this, you only have to realise that a man shipwrecked on a desert island, whether Robinson Crusoe or Tom Hanks' character, is of course a consumer in waiting. He must, as a bare minimum for his own survival, consume food, water and shelter. But how does he get them? How does he obtain such basics? Primarily through his own productive labour. Even if that labour involves no more than beating a path to the nearest spring water, shinning up a palm tree to harvest coconuts, or gathering up a pile of dry leaves out of which to make his bed, he must labour before he can consume. And once his basic needs have been met, how does he increase the quantity of consumables his labour will yield? By setting aside time, effort and resources from such immediate satisfaction, i.e. from end consumption. He might take time to shape an empty gourd into a water bottle so he doesn't have to limit himself to arranging only a few hours' work, walk from the well when he goes foraging. He might fashion vines and shoots into a kind of extendable net so he no longer has to spend time, as well as risk life and limb, climbing up sheer trunks for his dinner. Then, when Man Friday later washes up on the beach, the same argument will apply. 
But now, if they're both astute, our castaways will quickly decide how to share different tasks between them in order to maximise their joint efficiency. Having first come to some agreement about how each man's particular contribution will be rewarded out of the bounty they derive. What we're saying here is they'll divide their work, they'll specialise in their roles, and then they'll exchange the proceeds. It is therefore his actions as a producer, as a generator of capital, Robinson's gourds and nets, and also as an exchanger, a trader in the widest sense of the word, that determine a man's standard of living and not his consumption per se. What that latter urge does is to direct and prioritise a man's productive efforts, but it does not somehow precede them, either temporarily or logically. To believe otherwise is to espouse a cargo cult school of economics which loses sight of the origins of the goods to be consumed. It's an economics of Aladdin's lamp. It's a belief we only have to want something badly enough for it suddenly to appear at the trifling cost of giving our fortuitously captive genie's container a quick monetary polish. So macromancers, come on, stop putting the Keynesian cart before the Hayekian horse. Turn your focus to the real issue of the day, which is how can we better signal to one another the scale and the composition of our individual needs, both today and through time, so that I can furnish you with what you want and you me with what I desire, on a date, at a place, in a proportion which is to our mutual satisfaction. How also can we do this in a manner which does not degrade our capacities to repeat the process as needed, or to blind us to any changes in the intensity and the constitution of what it is that we each want out of our own interactions as we carry them on? It doesn't make for an easily tweeted platitude or a pseudo-profound TV soundbite, but it does not alter the fact that the single most important thing in the world, now as ever, is how best we can unscramble the signals and clear away the largest number of impediments to trade so that what we produce and when is in greater harmony not just with what others desire to acquire but with the means at our disposal with which to supply their desires. The answer, simple to enunciate, exceedingly difficult to enact, will lie in making the price of both goods and capital more reflective of their relative demand and their ordinal priority, their scheduling, and then allow free and unhindered exchange to take place between as many people as wish to participate in it, irrespective of the fact that those arbitrary cartographical divisions called borders might currently separate them as they do. It is a sobering thought on which to conclude that most of what today passes for public policy and nearly all of the supposed remedies routinely proposed and endorsed by such luminaries as Messrs. Brown and O'Neill are either wholly irrelevant or plainly inimical to our hopes of achieving any measure of progress in this regard. Quack, quack, bang, bang.